the teachings are not something, as I often say, that you need to take notes or remember. There's no exam, there's no quiz, and they're really more of a reflection, a meditation. And tonight in particular, because of some topics that we find difficult, I don't want to teach as if I know the answers. My wife would be very smiling, happily smiling when I say this, but offer it really as a, as a contemplation and as a reflection. And what I'd like to talk about tonight is wise society. And part of the reason for doing this is that last month, after I finished giving that talk, which included the long and quite wonderful story of Sir Gawain and what it is that women want, those of you who attended, it's a story I love to tell. Part of my reason for telling it was actually in response to the Supreme Court decisions recently, especially that about access to abortion, but other things as well. And the story really links that to that in a certain way, but I didn't do it explicitly. And I felt wrong afterward, like, wait, you know, I didn't really say what I wanted to say. So let's try it in a different way tonight. The first thing is to say that it's a mistake to believe that Dharma practice, the inner practice of liberation, is an individual matter. One of the deepest realizations that comes as we meditate, as we pay attention, as we live a life of care and loving awareness and mindfulness and so forth, is the growing sense of interdependence that there's absolutely no separation between our body and the body of the earth and our life and the DNA and body of the biosphere and the food we eat and the beings that we live with, that we are completely interdependent. And so when I think about teaching meditation and Dharma and so forth, one of the things that's really obvious is that it has to include our embeddedness in the community in which we live. Mahatma Gandhi put it explicitly. He said, those who say that spirituality has nothing to do with politics do not understand what spirituality really means. They come together. And there are many, many teachings about wise society. There's a beautiful book called The Buddha's Teachings on Social Harmony, Social and Communal Harmony by Bhikkhu Bodhi with a couple of hundred pages of passages from the Buddhist texts and teachings on this very topic. And one passage in Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha says, there are four types of beings, those who practice for the welfare of themselves, those who practice for the welfare of others, those whose life and practice is neither for the benefit and welfare of themselves nor of others. And finally, those who practice for the welfare and benefit 
of themselves and others. And this is his invitation for a wise way of practice. And again, in another text in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, a beautiful text where he talks about why society, he says, how can people live in harmony? If they meet together and listen to one another respectfully and depart in harmony, they will prosper and not decline. If they honor the healthy laws and traditions of the past that other human beings have passed down, they will prosper and not decline if they don't forget those lessons. If they care for the vulnerable in the society, the children, those who are ill, anyone who's vulnerable, they will prosper and not decline. If they care for their natural environment around them, they will prosper and not decline. Why society? So this is a divided time. We all know this. It's reflected in our divisive politics, which are more about fear and loss of power than love. We all know this. So then how do we go about attending to wise society? And it asks a kind of courage that is in part the courage of tenderness and vulnerability or mutual respect. And there's a story I've read before, maybe even sometime in this last year, but I'm gonna read again because it's illustrative as was the Sir Gawain story last week. It concerns a monastery that has fallen on hard times once it was a great order with many houses and monks and nuns, but with the rise of secularism and the decline of those who wanted to join monas the monasteries, and we can see it in our modern culture. It gradually declined until there was only the mother house and an abbot and four others, all at 70 years of old age. Now in the woods surrounding this great monastery, there was a little hut that the wise rabbi who lived in the town used to use as a place to meditate. And the monks who were tuned into their environment could sense when the rabbi had come, the rabbis in the woods. And at one point, they just looked at themselves and said, we are a community in decline. We are about to lose our order. I wonder if the rabbi has anything he could help us, say to help us. Some advice. So the abbot went to greet the rabbi and his old friends, they embraced one another and gazed at one another. You know, it's tough being an abbot. I said, Ajahn Chah went over, we took him to the Spencer Abbey to see Father Thomas Keating, one of these great, greatest, um, Catholic Cistercian monasteries. And we stood there um, and Thomas Keating was this great big tall monk wearing black and white sort of penguin style robes. And Ajahn Chah was wearing his sort of dusky forest off orange robes. And he was sort of short and squat and they looked at each other. And the first thing Ajahn Chah said to Thomas Keating, we were in the 
kind of in the courtyard with the hundreds monks who lived there and the abbot, he looked at him and he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's kind of a weird greeting. And I was translating. And Thomas Keating said, you're so sorry. What kind of greeting is that? And Achan Shah said, you're the abbot. And then he turned around and he said to all the people, monks gathered there, he said, you have no idea how hard it is to be an abbot. You should really treasure this man. And Keating had this big smile on his face after that. So the abbots, they embraced and they talked about how hard things were in this world for those who are devoted to a spiritual life. And the rabbi said, I don't really have any advice for you. The only thing I can tell you is some sense I have that the Messiah that you wait for is somehow among you. What a strange things to say. But that's what he said in the old abbot of the monastery went back after seeing the rabbi and they asked, what did he say? And he said, well, it's the strangest thing. He said, the Messiah is among you. I thought, what could that mean? Could it mean that one of the monks is the Messiah? Do you dispose the abbot? You know, he's our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he might've meant brother Thomas, certainly brother Thomas is a holy man a man of light. Certainly he couldn't have meant brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at the time, but come to think of it, even though he's a thorn in people's side, when you look back at it, Elred is virtually always right, often very right. Maybe the rabbi did mean brother Elred, but sure not, surely not brother Philip. Philip's so passive, a real nobody. But then almost mysteriously, he does have a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet supposing he did, suppose I'm the Messiah. Oh my, I couldn't be that much. And as they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. And on the off off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest in which the monastery was situated was beautiful and it happened people still came to visit or picnic on the lawn or wander some of the paths and go to the old chapel, as they did without even any words, they began to sense an aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks and began to radiate out for them and permeate the atmosphere of the place, just like the metta you were just doing. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. And hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends and show them, and their friends brought friends. Then it happened that some of the younger ones who came started to talk more more with the old monks. And after a while, one asked if he might join them and another and another. And so within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order. And thanks to the rabbi's wisdom, a vibrant center, 
of spirituality and light for the community and all those around them. And I suppose as the fairy tales go, it should be they lived happily ever after or something like that. So what does this say to us? First, it talks about quieting the mind and opening the heart and listening deeply, listening with respect to one another, to ourselves, to our own body and heart, to those around us, including those who we might judge or disagree with initially. Kind of reflecting about this. How much respect do you give to those you disagree with? And what would they feel from you? Not that you have to the same ideas, but is there that spirit of respect? Can you see them all? As Merton says, see the secret beauty behind their eyes. Can you see them all somehow with the heart open? even if you disagree. Can you see like Kuan Yin with the eyes of compassion and the thousand arms and thousand eyes? You've seen those images of Pablo Ketrisvara, Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion. And she's called, she who hears the cries of the world. She listens to everyone's heart. And the Dharma are the teachings is the medicine for the world. And part of this medicine is the invitation, this capacity that we have to listen deeply and to listen with respect. Why society? The teachings of the Dharma, beginning with the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, say that suffering for us as human beings in this human incarnation exists. Anybody not have that? You can have your, whatever you paid back. I wish you well, but it's not how it works, is it? There is suffering individually and globally, and it has its causes, the second noble truth. The causes of suffering are greed, hatred, and ignorance. And the more that we live with and promote and embody greed or hatred and all of its judgment and anger and so forth and ignorance, the more there will be suffering. And yet the opposite, Instead of greed, the more there's generosity. Instead of hate, the more there's love and care. Instead of ignorance, the more there's wisdom and truth seeing, truth telling. Then the greater happiness and well being. It's not very complicated. A little bit. I'm not quite sure the word I was going to say horrifying to look around the world because there are so many avenues that are promoting greed in our culture, promoting hatred, promoting lack of truth and ignorance. And the point isn't to 
fix it. But on the other hand, the point is to see it clearly because without seeing it, we can't go another way. And things can seem like they've always been that way, you know, but they haven't and they don't have to be. I was so moved today when I listened to a little bit of the broadcast of the Pope apologizing to all those people now, elderly, native people of Canada, could be the US as well, who were stolen from their parents and put into these residential schools, you know, which were places often of torment and abuse for a hundred years. And he apologized, he said, there's, there's no excuse. But the amazing thing is that it was taken for granted for a long time. And yet when we hear now and see, we know how wrong it was. And this is especially apparent to those who are not part of the dominant dimension of the culture, the women and the BIPOC people. Let me tell a, a little moment. I had led a series of meetings for the Buddhist teachers from around the world for 30, 40 years and brought teachers together. And one year back in the early 90s, we brought lamas and swamis and mamas and a lot of Western teachers together with the Dalai Lama and Dharamsala. And there we were seated in his kind of palace. And part of our reason to come together was to reaffirm our ethics and talk about some of the difficulties that had been happening with various Buddhist masters, not to speak of, you know, clergy and other religions and political figures, coaches and all those things, the abuse of power, but we wanted to address it directly. So we had this meeting and brought these things forward to see how can we operate in a way that's safeguards students and teachers. It was very moving actually, and not easy because there were some people in the room that everybody knew had been perpetrators of the suffering. But anyway, at one point, one of the Tibetan nuns who'd come, Tenzin Palmo, she wrote 12 years in a cave. She lived in a cave for 12 years, an amazing, wonderful woman, talked about how incredibly hard it was for the nuns and for the women in Tibetan Buddhism and how the men had the good food and the warm places, the monastery, the women were working in the kitchen or outside and you know how difficult it was. And the Dalai Lama began to weep. He said, I knew it was hard. I didn't know it was this hard. And then Sylvia Wetzel, a teacher from Germany, said, your holiness, can I teach you a meditation? It was great, you know, the Tibetans would never dare to do that, but you know how we are as Westerners, we're weird and kind of willing to stick our neck out and every kind of gasped. And he said, of course. So she said, I want you to look around and the room was filled with all this beautiful tankas and imagery and statues. She said, and now close your eyes. She guided him and everyone, I'd like you to quiet now and imagine that there's a little reversal that happened. You see the 16 tankas around the room of the great masters and teachers. 
But now you look at them and they're all in a female form. Every one of them had been men. You know, Jason Kappa and, you know, whoever these great masters were. Oh, Madam Tsongkhapa. And you look and you see that there's a woman in every one of these tongues. And then you turn around and you look at the altar and there all the statues are of female Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And then you look to either side and there are all those companions in the holy life with you, all these senior women, wise women. And then you look at your own body and you just go, oh my, I am the 14th Dakini Dalai Lama, and I've always been born in a woman's body, woman's body, because they say that even though men can get enlightened, it's much better to be born in a woman's body. I tell you, the room was in shock, and I just loved it. It was like one of the great moments, because there we were surrounded by the patriarchy, which has been a big part of Buddhist culture, but culture around the world. And here was Sylvia flipping the table in such a creative and wonderful way. And afterward, the Dalai Lama cried a little bit and he said, I will do my best to help women become empowered, even in Buddhist tradition, even though it's not what our culture has done before. And slowly it's happened, slowly. Patriarchy, you may have noticed it. Yeah. I mean, it's not just there in the religious or spiritual world, but we're all worried about climate change. And yet when you look at drawdown and the greatest science about what will help reverse climate change. As you heard me say, the number one thing at the top of the list is not wind or solar power or change in agriculture, but the most effective change of all would be the empowerment of girls and women. That would change the world more radically. So this means we have to listen like the monks to one another in that story with a kind of respect for each being, not in the old way, but in a sacred way, in some new fashion. Even those we might disagree with, like the brother Philip and brother Elrad and the story and so forth. My beloved Trudy Goodman, my partner and wife and also Dharma teacher, founder of Inside LA, recently went through treatment for uterine cancer. She'd been bleeding a bit and got tested and it turned out it was cancer. And she had major surgery, radical hysterectomy and so forth. And we were quite worried, but it turned out fortunately to be very early stage. And they said this was all the treatment that she needed. So she's gradually getting better, although it takes a while after surgery. But some of the remarkable things about it, first of all, she wanted a woman surgeon. We found the top surgeon at UCLA. We did it 
in Los Angeles together look for this. And she said, it was amazing. I went into the operating room and it was all women. The doctors, the nurses, the everyone there. She said, it made me feel like I was in the right place. And she had the surgery. And when she came out, the nurse who came to take care of her in the recovery room, I came up to see her then. And Trudy said, what's your name? She said, Petra. She said, what kind of name is that? I was sitting looking at my phone or something. Petra said, it's a Thai name. And Trudy said, oh, my husband speaks Thai. And I looked up and I said, hello, and then Thai and so forth. She said, how do you speak Thai? I said, oh, I've been a monk in Thailand. And then she looked and she said, are, are you Jack Cornfield? I said, yes. She said, oh, my teacher is Ajahn Chah. I grew up in the province where Ajahn Chah was. He's my, my teacher. I know you are a student. We have the same teacher. And she came and she bowed and she was so excited. And she said, oh, Trudy, you are the Dharma teacher here. And it was, it was like we were surrounded by these women who were so loving and supportive. And when Trudy had to get up and do her first walk down the long corridor of the recovery room and back, she started to walk very slowly and Petra said to her, Trudy, where is your mind now? And Trudy said, it's, it's in my feet. Petra said, yes, you must keep it in your body. And then she started giving us all these Dharma teachings of, you know, death can come at any time. You must live in the present and pay attention and so forth. And it was, it was kind of wild. But what's happened since then is Trudy has been sharing this whole journey. At first, she was keeping it private on Instagram in all kinds of ways, uh, telling her story, showing images. And she's gotten back hundreds and hundreds of responses from women who say people don't talk so much, certainly in her generation, our generation, about their uterus and their ovaries and surgery and the female organs. And, um, and Trudy just, as she does, just put it all out there. And she said, in this time, when in the culture, the feminine is not being uplifted, but in ways is actually being denigrated, it really feels important that we come together and see the beauty of the feminine that we we uplift it together in some way and then petra said listen you are the one to heal yourself you must you must listen to yourself and i felt during this whole process these different levels of experience one that was predominant at times was a concern and a worry. Will she be okay? I love her. You know, all the thoughts that we have, especially for the almost the week that we had to wait for the pathology report to find out how far the cancer had spread and what kind it actually was. And finally, we got this very good report. Another dimension at the same time was almost as if I could become vast and silent and say, well, this is human incarnation. Old age, sickness and death are part of the noble truths of what the Buddha spoke about. 
It's what comes in a human incarnation. We may have many of them, in fact, and that's what's happening now. And there's this vast perspective and the Dharma is to hold it all in compassion and to see it clearly, but not to be so caught by it. So now I wanna move on and talk about something related and even more difficult, which is abortion. And I wanna talk about it through the lens of sovereignty from the talk last week, for those of you who attended, what it is that women want. And from the lens of respect, because it's so polarized. And whatever your views about it, this is a reflection. It's a time to meditate and consider. Because it gets so polarized on one side, in the polarized view, it's always bad. It's a terrible thing. We must do everything to stop it. You know that view. The, anti-abortion view. And then on the other side, it can be called a simple procedure. You know, it's a medical procedure. People should have the right to their own medical procedure on their own bodies. Yeah. But of course, it's not just a medical procedure. And it's not just one thing or the other. Um, and to listen with respect requires a kind of vulnerability and tenderness as we struggle with it. Long ago, when I was much younger, I was with a woman who got pregnant. And it was a little bit of a dangerous pregnancy because she got pregnant on a coil in a way that wasn't necessarily healthy. And we also were really not ready to have a child. And so we decided together to have an abortion. And it was hard. It wasn't just an easy thing, you know? It took a lot of consideration and care and thoughtfulness and pain in some cases and struggle. So the idea that an abortion is not nothing, just a quick procedure, isn't the truth. My dear friend, Yvonne Rand, who died a few years ago, was one of the main Dharma successors of Suzuki Roshi in San Francisco Zen Center. And she used to host these ceremonies that came from Japan for water babies. And it was a ritual primarily for women, although men could attend, who had lost babies through miscarriage or abortion, if they chose that, or other reasons, stillbirth. And women flocked to them because they held in their bodies the kind of loss, and some men too, that it represented. 
and there was no judgment in it. It didn't say this was wrong or this was right. It was just a tenderness holding our human incarnation saying, this is one of the things we have to struggle with. It's not nothing. And I know if I talk really personally back in some of the deepest places in my meditation and my inner exploration, where I had the sense, the vision, the experience of past lives and being born and, and deepest meditations and breath work and so forth. A few of those births and deaths were as a tiny little embryo, which either miscarried or got aborted. And I can remember feeling I didn't have a personality, I didn't have a life, I didn't know anything, but I could feel I was alive and I wanted to cling to that life as all life does. And then it was gone, wow. And then I could feel the cycling to come back again, to take another birth. You can believe what you do, I'm just reporting my experience. Does this mean that therefore we should ban abortion? Not in the slightest. Women need the sovereignty over their own bodies and hearts, and it cannot be dictated to another human being. And if my daughter Caroline was to come to me and say that she wanted or felt that it was right or she needed to have an abortion, I would want my daughter to have that choice as much as every other woman. Now, the truth is that more women die in pregnancy in the US than any other developed country because we don't care for them so well. The majority of abortions happen to women in their 20s who are already moms and overwhelmed and can't take care of more children or have some other part of their life where there are reasons that they cannot. And the truth is that society doesn't support mothers and children, and you know that. We are something like 30th or 50th on the list of developed and developing nations in terms of how much our society supports women and child care. It's crazy. It's 10 times or 50 times as much in other countries as here. So what does this mean? It means it's not a simple thing. It's tender and vulnerable. It talks about the mystery of incarnation. It happens just as I described, feeling that experience and being born again and again for several times in that way. It's certainly not the purview of others to tell a woman what she should do. Even though I can respect those who are the most caring on the pro-life side, 
I can listen and really respect that. My deepest respect is for the sovereignty of women themselves. This is really a reflection of our practice of mutual respect, of not lording it over another being, but meeting them as they did in that monastery, seeing each other with the eyes of deep respect. The Buddha's teaching on wise society is not about rigidity or taking a side but can you come together and hear one another in harmony? Meet with respect, depart in respect. Listen with the body and the heart, hold it all in compassion. One of the things that strikes me in the Buddhist texts is that at the end of his dialogue with many people who came to see the Buddha and said, give me teachings of liberation or compassion or how do I manage my life or what do I do in this difficult human life and all the different problems people gave. And the Buddha would respond as he did. And there's many, many stories and accounts of these dialogues. They end with him saying something very powerful. He looks kindly at that person as he was the compassionate one. And then he says, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. It's a really powerful phrase. He gave the best teachings he could. He pointed them. Often they had an amazing experience. And he said, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. He placed it in the good hearts and hands of that individual who was there in front of him. We live in a current climate of fear. And when we consider why society on different sides, there's the fear of the loss of the spiritual. You know, we live in a society that's partly characterized by the absence of the sacred, the loss of values, the loss of church. But unfortunately, the response is more about power, you know? Who's losing power, who has power? Not a response of love or a sense of the sacred. But the Buddhist teachings for why society say one must look not at the results, but at the causes and conditions that allow for respect of the land, of climate, of one another. Let's talk about another difficult topic since we're in that deep waters here. I hope it's okay for you. Take a breath. I wanna talk about our prison system because it fits with tonight's teaching. The US has the largest prison system in the entire planet. We have less than 20% of the world's population 
and this enormous multi-million person, multi-hundreds of billions of dollar system of locking people up. And you know, you know there is a prison industrial pipeline that goes from the poorest communities right into our prisons. You all know this. I remember when I brought a group of people together with the Dalai Lama, people who'd been in prison and practicing Dharma and somehow got out to try to educate him about the US because he seemed to think things were really good here in all kinds of ways. And he wanted to know what is your American suffering? How can the Dharma help? So we brought these people together and he was astonished to hear about the prison system. And I remember one of the young men said, you have to understand your holiness. He stood up, his name was Amos. He said, man, you gotta get it. They want us in prison in my hood, in my neighborhood. That was where you were headed. So Jacques Verdun, one of our community at Spirit Rock, starting almost 30 years ago, began what was called the Insight Prison Project. Now I think it's called Insight Out at San Quentin, and it's now spread to many other prisons. Um, and it is a program guiding rage into power. And then there's a prison yoga project and a prison garden project and, you know, uh, veterans, healing veterans. There's all kinds of projects he's done and they're really quite fantastic. And in them, he's gotten 500 lifers out of prison going through these programs who've changed their lives. So I was invited, I'd been on his board, chaired his board at one point, and I was invited to go to a uh, graduation, the annual graduation of the Guiding Rage into Power, the GRIP program, Get a Grip. And here we are in the auditorium in San Quentin, we're about 120 men wearing mortarboards and caps and gowns like any other graduate. And they invited their speaker, one of the, they'd elected one of them to be their valedictorian who stood up and he spoke for them. And he said, we have been violent men and the men all said, yes. And we now pledge to you that we will never do so again. We've learned about the suffering of anger and how we create suffering for one another. And we are not those people anymore. And they all stood up and took this amazing pledge. And you could feel the genuineness of it. And I gave a talk about the dignity of the human being and Buddha nature and every being or something, my usual spiel, so to speak. Um, but I meant it from the heart. And then Luis Rodriguez, who'd been the poet laureate of Los Angeles this last couple of years, and a great Latino activist and visionary and fine poet, got up to read them a poem. And he looked around the room and he said, I can't read my poem yet. There were about 300 people in the audience, if you will, corrections officials and politicians and the local mayor and people, the families of these men. And I said, you men, when you stood up and said you would not be violent men, you also gave us an apology. You said, and they said it collectively and deliberately, 
for all the ways that we have caused suffering to those we hurt, to our families, to our communities, in all these ways, we feel that suffering now and we apologize. We deeply apologize and you could feel it. He said, I can't read you my poem because it's not just you who needs to apologize. And he turned around and looked at the room of the corrections people and the people from the police and the politicians and various other folks. And he said, you know, it's we who failed you as well. Almost every one of you was born into a community where you as a child was not pr protected. You weren't protected from racism. You weren't protected from the poverty where you lived. You weren't given an education that really enhanced your life and protected you. There's so many ways we did not care for you or protect you. And standing here, I offer you an apology on our behalf for what happened to you. It was an amazing moment. Everybody in the room got quiet. Turned the tables. And then he read his poem. We're in this together, you know. When we listen with respect, like that story, we can see the causes and conditions. We can see how we treat the vulnerable among us, as the Buddha said, the homeless, the Dhaka, you know, those children who were brought here as young children and still can't live lives, even they never lived anywhere else in our political system doesn't care for them. We're in this together, you know. I led a men's group with Robert Hall at Spirit Rock some years ago. In the evening, we had a circle where men would get in the middle and tell stories of their lives. And one guy who was in the middle said he had a radio show in Los Angeles of blues. He said, and I, I'm on whatever it is, KPCC or something like that every Sunday night. And I get lots of fan letters from people who love the blues, but I especially get letters from men who are inside prisons because this is one of the things they have is the ability to listen. And I got a letter one time from this man, Joe Johnson. And he said, I so love your show. I listen every week. I'm a great fan of the blues. And I'd like to ask, you know, would you play some of the early classics, Blind Leonard Jefferson and Muddy Waters and some of the other great blues masters? So the week after he got the letter, he said, this is going out to a man, Joe Johnson, who clearly knows the history of the blues. It's an honor to play these songs for you, Joe. And he played some of the great old classics. And two or three weeks later, he received a note from Joe Johnson 
thanking him, saying, thank you. Thank you for playing those for me. And then he said, it's the first time in my life I can remember hearing my name said with respect. How about that? Talking about causes and conditions and respect for one another, we're in this together. Okay, one more story since we're talking about difficult things and we're reflecting, we're meditating. Let's talk about war. It's so easy to get fixated because there's a lot of propaganda. You know that word, it's flying around, baby. Now it's true that what Putin is doing in Ukraine is terrible, but there's also terrible worlds, wars all around the world that we're not paying attention to, you know, in Sudan and in Myanmar and so many other places. But if we look at causes and conditions, we have to understand something different. If we look through the eyes of the Dharma and respect for one another. I was at Ajahn Jamdian's monastery as a monk in the Malay Peninsula. And his monastery, which was a metta monastery, that was the main practice of loving kindness, was in a, a rubber forest going up the mountainside. And there was a lot of fighting at that time. There were communist insurgents in the mountains and the Thai military there. It was during the 1960s and early 70s. And sometimes at night there would be firefights around. When it got close, you could actually see the flash of the guns and hear all that. And Ajahn Jamnian was known as a peeps maker. He would go to each side and give them amulets to try to protect everyone from being hurt. But one morning after that, big firefight that was close to the monastery. I was sitting in a clearing doing my meditation and there was an older monk there and a helicopter came over the ridge about a mile or mile and a half away and it started dropping canister bombs. You could see the explosions up in the top of the ridge. And I said to the old monk, well, they must have come to bomb those you know, communist insurgents or whatever you call them, um, who were fighting down here last night. And the old monk looked at me and he said, nah. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, those insurgents, they live in caves about, oh, 10 kilometers north, two valleys over in there, we know where they live. I said, well, why are they bombing here? And he looked at me and he said, there aren't that many of them. If they killed them all off, who would give them the helicopters and all this money? The Pentagon's so happy that we have Russia as a new enemy again, returned as an enemy. You know, we who are the largest weapon suppliers on the face of the earth, and then worry that we're not safe. So we look at causes and conditions. If we look with respect, what does it mean to see honestly and listen deeply? 
to the cries of the world as Kuan Yin does? What is the answer? It starts in our hearts, quiet the mind, open the heart, listen with respect, to see each other with respect, to see ourselves with respect, and to have both a vast perspective that this is human incarnation, it's not pretty. It's magnificent and beautiful and creative in all these ways. And it's also difficult. There is suffering, but there are causes and conditions and it can increase or decrease. And if we honor one another, the sovereignty of one another with respect, if we listen in ourselves in a deep way, the text says, others will be cruel, we shall be kind, thus we'll incline the heart. Others will kill living beings, we shall protect them, thus we shall incline the heart. Others will steal or be greedy. We shall be generous, thus shall we incline the heart. Others will speak falsely. We shall tell the truth, speak truth, thus we will incline the heart. Others will be arrogant. We will have humility, thus we shall incline the heart. Others will be unmindful. We will listen with mindfulness, thus we will incline the heart. Others will lack wisdom and compassion. We will develop wisdom and compassion, thus we will incline the heart. You become a Buddha. You steady your heart. You listen, you trust your body. You see how difficult it is to be human and how magnificent and beautiful. You see that suffering isn't the end of the story. Otherwise we wouldn't have tutus and the Dalai Lama and you know, we wouldn't have Wangari Matai and Ellen Sirleaf and all these Nobel laureates who rose above the suffering of the world and show us there's another way. You are one of them. And when you meditate, and meditation is just a kind of preparation for living wisely, then in the end, you can listen to this one question. What would love have me do today? With all these things we're concerned about, can we listen? Can we approach them one another with respect? Quiet the mind, feel the vastness of life. What would love have me do today? So these are reflections for you on difficult topics. They're not answers. They're not saying how you should be. As the Buddha says, now it's time for you to go and do as you see fit. But they're reminders. 
of something that you really know and that you can trust. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.